Good morning. You know, there is, I'm a little strong. There is a process that unfolds every four or eight years, and it's really kind of a spectator sport. It is the process of, <clears throat> of presidential candidates choosing their vice presidential running mates. And it's really uh, a bit of an adventure because we, we see who goes in and who comes out and we analyze what each one of them brings to the table. And, and, uh, and it's interesting because even with everything that goes into those interviews, we now have FBI checks, background checks, credit checks. I mean, every other way that we know theoretically the full story of a person it, it's amazing how often those choices um, just don't turn out very well. Uh, it's not just politics. It's baseball teams, football teams, basketball teams. You know, you don't do very well. You fire the coach, and you go through this elaborate interview process. Even with everything available to us, we still have the, the, the sense that a face-to-face -face interview is somehow uh, the best way to really tell if you've got the right person. Um, the problem is, in, in those interviews, no matter how discerning the person giving the interview may be, he can only really get to the information that the person being interviewed wants him to have. But we finished the Gospel of John this morning with an interview, and it is an interview where the interviewer knows the one being interviewed better than he knows himself. And so this is an interview that we can trust as uh, sort of getting to the, to the heart of the matter. I've told you that John chapter 21 is an epilogue. The gospel really sort of concludes, it, it, it climaxes with that confession of Thomas, my Lord and my God, in chapter 20. In chapter 21, we saw a uh, resurrection appearance of Jesus that, uh, that happened on the beach in a similar setting to, uh, to what they had seen in the beginning of his ministry. And Jesus uh, allows the fishermen to catch a, a great load of fish, and then he fixes them breakfast. But now we realize that that was a setup for the rest of the unfinished uh, the loose threads, if you will, that John wants to, to cover before he closes out his book. And so in the 21st chapter, as we come to these final verses, and when I say final verses, these, these are the last verses that we will look at from the Gospel of John, but this series uh, has one more week to it. And so uh, we'll, we'll finish with a, with a final message from, from the Gospel of John series uh, next week. But as we come to the closing of this book itself, uh, John wants to tie up two loose ends. What was the standing of Peter in the church? And then, what was the story with John? All right? Let's look at these two passages. Um, we're going to start with what I've called confession and commission. Before I read the verses, let me remind you of where we are. Um, this is the third resurrection appearance that John tells us about, although we know from the other Gospels there have been others. But in this uh, resurrection appearance, there is this elephant in the room, if you will. 
and it is what to do with Peter. Peter was, whether by official recognition or just sort of informal uh, consensus, Peter was the leader of the disciples. They, they followed his direction. They, they tended to move in, in ways that he thought they should go. Um, he was the one who spoke out when Jesus said, who do men say that I am? It was Peter who jumped up and said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. He gave that confession and Jesus said, I'm going to take that confession and I'm going to make that the cornerstone of this thing that I'm going to create called the church. And Peter, uh, actually his name was Simon at that point, he said, I'm going to give you a new name. I'm going to give you the name Peter. Peter means rock. Peter means solid. Peter means uh, dependable. And I'm going to give you that name because you're going to be a significant piece in, in, this, uh, in, in this body of believers, this community of faith that I'm going to put together that will be empowered by my spirit. Peter, you have a role to play. Until we get to the arrest and trial of Jesus. And Peter doesn't, Peter doesn't uh, do well. He pulls out a sword at the arrest and tries to cleave open the skull of the servant of the high priest. And Jesus has to scold him. That's not how we do things here. He follows Jesus, even though at a bit of a distance, and finds himself in the courtyard where soldiers and servants and others have gathered because there's a lot of activity, even though it's nighttime, there's a lot of activity with this trial of this uh, um, dangerous criminal Jesus who's just been arrested by a Roman cohort of soldiers. And in that setting, Peter um, doesn't quit himself well. Three times he denies even knowing Jesus, even the last time using language that was more a reflection of, uh, of his old life than his new life. And he goes out and he's brokenhearted. But then Easter Sunday morning comes and with all the excitement of Jesus coming to life, of him rising from the dead, you have to know in Peter there's a, there, there's a conflict because as horrible as it was for Peter to betray Jesus and see him die and, and feel like uh, he was never going to be able to, uh, to get over what he had done, then Jesus comes back and now all of a sudden Peter, the only thing worse than, de than denying Jesus and being left with that is denying Jesus and having Jesus come back. And at, it appears that to this third account that John gives us, it appears that that elephant in the room, what to do with Peter, has never been dealt with. It hasn't come up. It's been left sort of hanging out there. And it's not just Peter that needed to deal with it, and it's not just Jesus that needed to, uh, to, to settle the issue, but, but you've got the other disciples who are wondering to themselves, okay, Jesus said, as the Father sent me, I'm going to send you. This story is going to continue. This mission is, still has more to come. But in their minds, the question is, well, what about Peter? I mean, do, do we follow Peter? Is, is Peter still in the group? Is Peter disqualified now? Is he outside? I mean, what do we do? Well, they went fishing, and they were with Peter. Clearly, Peter has not been ostracized, 
But the question of who's leading is still up in the air. So Jesus is on the shore, and they catch this great catch of fish. We saw that last week. And they come to the shore. Peter jumps in the water for all of his uh, reluctance uh, to deal with this, he, he wants to be with Jesus. The rest of them make their way to shore in the boat, and then Jesus fixes them breakfast. There's a charcoal fire and a circle of men sitting around the fire. They've brought some of their fish to add to what Jesus had, and he has prepared breakfast. That's the setting that we get these final two strands that have to be tied up. What happens to Peter, and what about John? So, confession and commission. John chapter 21, beginning in verse 15. Let me read this conversation to you, and then we'll just, we'll just walk our, our way through it. John tells us, Now when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said it, and he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. All right, let's talk about this conversation. This is one of those places in Scripture that it's really significant um, what is given to us by inspiration of the Spirit in the original languages and, and what we miss in an English translation, okay? Here's the setting. Now, some, some scholars think that, that Jesus and Peter wandered off for a private conversation. That's not what the text says. There's a later part of this episode where they have then wandered away. But I think for this conversation, this had to happen with everybody present. There is this elephant in the room, this unattended issue of what to do with Peter. They're sitting in a circle around this fire, and they've had breakfast, and Jesus turns to Peter and says, Simon, son of John. Now, before we even get to the question, this is a real blow to Peter's ego. saying, so, oh, what's the big deal? Well, here's the big deal. There was a time when, John, when Peter makes the confession, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus says, I'm going to give you a new name. I'm going to give you the name Peter, Rock. You're going to be an important part of what happens here. He called him Peter all the rest of his time until right here when Jesus reverts to Simon, Simon, son of John, his old name. Now right there, in my sanctified imagination, there is an air of solemnity that settles over the conversation. I mean, they may have had a little bit of bantering back and forth, even though they're a little nervous about being in the presence of a resurrected man. But if there was any lighthearted conversation, it's gone when Jesus turns and calls Peter by his old name, Simon. Why would he do that? Because the Peter, the rock that, he, that Jesus wanted him to be, had not made an appearance in a minute. What we've seen is Simon. 
Simon, the old man, the, the, the previous man, the, 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 the unregenerate man, Simon, the one who, who figured out his own way of doing things, Simon, who strategized his own problems, Simon, who didn't depend on anybody else, Simon, who didn't follow Jesus in the crucial moment. You ever thought about those, those moments of denial? I mean, I think part of, part of what's happening here is that Jesus understands that, that even while Peter had a lot of uh, boasts about how solid he's going to be and, and, and how strong he was as a leader, when it came right down to it, in the moment of, of, of the arrest, the trial, and the, and the crucifixion, Peter didn't want a crucified Lord. I mean, he wanted a conquering king, but he didn't want a savior on a cross. And I, 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 we, we struggled to, to grasp the level at which Jews in the first century had this understanding of the out, outright shame of being executed by crucifixion. I mean, in a, in a Jewish family in the first century, if you had somebody executed by crucifixion on a cross, chances are their names would never be spoken again in the family. The family couldn't bear the shame of that kind of a death. It was the, it was the death reserved for only the vilest kinds of human beings, the people who were the most dangerous, the people who had caused the most damage, the people who had, uh, had the most uh, negative impact on the world around them. And to have a family member crucified was to just turn away as if that person never existed because of the, the weight of that crucifixion that it would bring onto a family. And here's Jesus on the cross. And part of the denial has to be something along the lines of the fact that, that when push came to shove, Peter didn't want a, a Savior on a cross. He wanted what he wanted. And yet here in the resurrection, Jesus is going to come back and He's going to confront Peter. Do you want me as I am? Not as you want me to be, as I am. And this is a question for our generation because we have lots of people who love to put words in Jesus' mouth. You know, they, well, Jesus would do this or Jesus wouldn't do this or Jesus would vote for this guy or Jesus would never vote for that guy. Listen... We don't, we don't get to pick and choose the kind of Jesus we want. He is who He is, and we take Him as He is, or we don't get Him at all. That's what was on the table for Peter. So Jesus starts this conversation, and everybody's around the circle. I don't think He pulled him away. I don't think this is a private conversation. I think this had to happen in front of everybody. And He turns, and He looks at, at Peter, and He goes, Simon do you love me more than these? Now, there's some speculation about what exactly Jesus was asking. Uh, there are some scholars who say, do you love me more than these fish? You know, the fish have been a big part of the story up until now. This whole resurrection appearance, remember there's 153 fish. We know exactly how many fish there was because it was a big deal. And the suggestion is maybe Jesus is saying, do you love me more than your former life? Are you interested in going back to what you had? Or, or are you going to stay with me? It could mean that, but probably not. Others say, well, he means, do you love me more than you love these guys? 
In other words, do you have a deeper connection to me than the bond that you share with, with your brothers here in the group? It, it could mean that, but, but probably not. What I think it means is Jesus, I would say it this way, do you love me more than these love me? You see, because if we go back to Matthew chapter 26, we find Peter when Jesus is saying, I'm going to be I'm going to be killed and everybody is going to abandon me. I'm going to be alone. And Peter jumps up, you remember? And he says, I can't speak for these guys, these slackers. I don't know what's going to happen with them, but I'm never going to leave you. I'm going to be right there. In effect, he's saying, I'm the best of this bunch. And you might not be able to count on these fellas, but I'm a guy, I'm the rock. I can be there. And so to broach this subject, what do we do with Peter? Jesus starts with this question. Peter, do you love me more than these love me? Because that was Peter's boast. I love you more. I'm more dependable. I'm the guy, not them. Peter, do you love me more than these love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Well, the first question is comparative. The second question is absolute. After a bit of a pause in my imagination, Jesus looks at Peter again. Now there's silence. Nobody's talking because this conversation is already uncomfortable for everybody sitting around that fire. Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Simon, do you love me? Not comparative. It's not do you love me more than these love me. Do you love me? This is an absolute Yes, Lord, I love you. A pause, and then the third question. Simon, do you love me? And it says that Peter is broken. He's hurt by the third question. Let me explain to you why, okay? When Jesus asked the first question, there are multiple words in Greek that, can, that are translated by the English word love, but they have different shades of meaning. You know the word agape, that is the highest form of love. It is self-sacrificing love. It's the kind of love where you would lay down your life for somebody else. There is a, a, a shade of meaning lower than that called phileo. Uh, it's, the, it's where we get uh, our word, for example, Philadelphia is supposedly the city of brotherly love, although that's bizarre. Um, but phileo is, means brotherly affection. Well, when Jesus asks the question, he says to Simon, do you love me, agape, do you love me in a self-sacrificing way more than these fellows love me? And Peter's answer is, Lord, I phileo you. Lord, you know I love you like a brother. There's a pause. The second question, not a comparative and absolute. Peter, I mean, Simon, do you agape, agapeo, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you like a brother. Now, a couple of things are happening here. I don't think that Peter is, um, I, don't, I, I don't think Peter is falling short here so much as 
Jesus is making a point, and Peter is, has learned a lesson from the denial, the night of the denials. Part of the lesson that Peter has learned is, I'm done boasting. Okay, I'm not going to step up to this when I know what's in me, and I'm going to say this because I can say this with all of my heart. Okay, Jesus invites him here. Peter lands here. Then Jesus invites him here again, and Peter lands here. Now, again, Peter is cautious. He's careful about his answer because he has overstated his qualifications on more than one occasion. But now there's a pause. Remember, do you love me? I love you like a brother. Do you love me? I love you like a brother. Then there's a pause, and Jesus switches to Peter's language. And he says, Simon, do you even love me like this? And it dawned on Peter what's happening. Remember the night of the denials when he went into the courtyard, there was a charcoal fire. And he stood in a circle of men around that charcoal fire. And when he was put on the spot, he denied Jesus. And then again, and then again. And it dawns on him, sitting on this beach, this seashore, here he is in a circle of men around a charcoal fire. And the same question essentially has been asked of him three times. He understands exactly what's going on here. This is his moment. He's either in or he's out based on what happens in this moment. Jesus is inviting him to reverse a triple denial with a triple confession. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Do you love me? And in his brokenness, realizing the parallels of those two conversations around a charcoal fire. He says, Lord, you know everything. He's inviting Jesus, look deep into my soul. For everything that I am lacking, for everything that is less than the best in me, for everything that is embarrassing in my past, everything for which I am ashamed of, in my history, you know that I love you. This is a powerful moment because Jesus is coming to a man who is carrying trunk loads of baggage from his disappointments and his embarrassments with him. And Jesus is going to come and in front of the group, they all know what's happened. They all know the story. They all know that, 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 that Peter's future is, is uncertain. And in front of the whole group, Jesus settles the issue that the past is the past 
And now that we've settled the issue that you love me, I have something for you to do. Listen, sometimes it's dangerous when we read stories in the Bible, it's dangerous for us to um, put ourselves in the place of the main character. You know, sometimes we like to read Bible stories and, 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 and be the hero of the story, uh, when in fact that's not the point of the, of the message at all. But in this particular story, I think we can put ourselves in the place of Peter. Because in any given church, certainly a church of this size, there are countless people who have made a, maybe a conscious but probably an unconscious decision to hang back, to be on the fringe. They like being here. They like being a part of this. They, they, they enjoy the experience of what it means to be here. But, but you're a little bit out on the edge because, because well, Pastor, you, you just don't know what's in my past. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what baggage I'm carrying around. Hear me now. I don't care about your past. I don't care about your, the things that you've done that, 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 that haunt you. What I care about is do you love Jesus? If we settle that issue, we'll let Jesus deal with our past. We'll let him handle our sin. We'll let him wash away our shame, our disappointments, our hurts. Today, do you love Jesus? You say, well, I, I love him like a brother. Well, guess what? If that's all you have, it's enough for right now. Quit holding back and come into the heart of what God is doing here and find your place. You don't really know me. You're right, I don't. But Jesus knows you. He knows you inside and out. And the question that he has for you is, do you love me? You see, here's what happens in this conversation. Each time Jesus asks the question, he then followed up with a commission. Do you love me more than these love me? Yes, Lord, I do. All right, tend my lambs. I'll talk about that in just a minute. Then the second one, do you love me? Absolutely. Yes, Lord, I do. All right, shepherd my sheep. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. You know I love you. Then feed my little ones. This phrase, tend, my tend to my lambs or feed my sheep, again, two Greek words. One has to do with feeding or nurturing. The other one has to do, the second one that said, where it says shepherd my sheep, the word shepherd is the Greek word poimen. Poimen is where we get our word pastor or shepherd. The role of a pastor really has, I mean, the... It has a lot of things to it, but, but there are two basic, well, there are three basic responsibilities for, for a pastor. One is he feeds the sheep. That is teaching, nurturing. He, he feeds the sheep. Secondly, he, he, he cares for them. 
pastoral care. He, he ministers to them. He looks out for them. That's poimain. That's the pastor. And then he oversees. That means he has the responsibility sort of that, 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 that all the sheep move to the same place at the same time together. All of these roles are, are a part of what it means to be a pastor. Now, when it comes to Peter in, in particular, here's what, here's what he's doing. In each of these ways, either feeding or pastoring or, or caring for, nurturing, he's giving to Peter a charge to be a pastor for this thing that is about to come into existence for the first time, this thing called the church. Now, there's an interesting phrase um, that we misunderstand and we use it wrong all the time. Uh, it's the phrase hook and crook. You say, oh, he'll do anything by hook or crook. And we think that that's, that that's a bad thing, that, that it's like somebody breaking the rules or cheating. But let me tell you where the phrase actually comes from. When Peter first received the call to follow Jesus at the beginning of, of Jesus' ministry, it was in the setting of fishing, and he, and he said to Peter, follow me and I will make you what? A fisher of men. The image of the fisherman has always traditionally been the fish hook. Now here at the end of his ministry, he is giving a commission to Peter and he says, I want you to be a shepherd. I want you to feed my sheep. The shepherd symbol is a staff, but, but if you can picture it, it's a staff that has the, the, the curved part at the top of the staff. It was used because that's how a shepherd could reach down a, a, a lamb that had fallen into a crevice or, or something and he could, he could pull it up. The phrase by hook or crook, it's not a negative phrase about cheating or, or, or being devious. It's the job description of a pastor. The hook is the gospel. We present the truth to the world and we allow the Holy Spirit to draw them into the kingdom to be a, a part of the church. But once they become a part of the church, once they move from the world into the church, then the pastor's responsibility is the shepherd's role. And with that crook, he ministers, he protects, he feeds and nurtures. Hook or crook basically means have the appropriate response to the people in the world and to the people who are in the church. God is giving to Peter an incredible commission to be a significant model as the church is born in just a few days. Now, this is not Jesus making Peter the first pope, okay? This, is, this passage is used for that. That's not what's happening here. He is not giving Peter some sort of universal and for all time role as as the, the senior pastor of the universe. He is saying to Peter, you have always been an example. The others have always followed you. So now, by hook and crook, the way you relate to the world, by sharing the gospel, the way that you minister to the, to the body, by teaching and by, by pastoring them, you are still that model. They're still gonna learn from you. I've got an important role that I want you to play. Come and play that role. It's interesting, this broken man, aware of his weakness, sensitive to his limitations, afraid to boast, he thought his time was over. And here Jesus is saying, I have sheep and they need to be fed and led. 
you find them good pasture and feed them. And you be a loving, nurturing shepherd and take care of them. I need Peter. It's time to put Simon to death. See, that's where we are. Your old man in you is probably not named Simon, but there's a Simon in all of us. And he tries to make an appearance now and again. He tries to put himself on display. He tries to be in charge. When Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, he's saying, I put the old man to death. I have to do that all the time because the old man loves to be in charge. But guess what? I'm not him anymore. And you're not him anymore either. So quit letting him convince you that because your past is not stellar, it's not perfect, it's not, 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 not clear of, of, of all stupidity, that you somehow are useless in the kingdom. Listen, here's the question for you. Do you love Jesus? Because if the answer is, yes, Lord, look deep in my soul, you know I love you. If that's your answer, We can make use of you. There's something that you can do that nobody else can do quite like you can do. Confession and commission. At that point, it seems as though Jesus does stand up and Peter stands up and they, they do begin to take a walk. I think this part of the conversation is in front of the group because the group needed to not only see Peter restored, but they needed to understand that he is the leader. That, that Jesus has recognized him and commissioned him for a role of leadership. But then they get up and begin to walk away, and John, Peter's best friend and the disciple that Jesus loved, John follows from a distance. Now, I don't know why. Maybe John just felt like, you know, maybe Peter could use the moral support. Maybe he felt like Jesus might have need of something. I, I don't know. John just sort of follows. And here's what we have in verse, let's see, verse 20. No, verse 18. No. What verse are we on? <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Verse 18. This is, this is the conversation with Peter. I set that up about John. John's not going to come into it just yet, but, but hold on. He's, 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 he's listening. Jesus says to Peter, truly, truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to put on your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will put your belt on you and bring you where you do not want to go. Now he said this, indicating by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had said this, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. Here's the thing. Jesus doesn't do this for anybody else. And frankly, it's a good thing that he doesn't. Looking back, we know that of the 12 disciples, uh, counting Matthias who replaced Judas Iscariot, of the 12 disciples, 11 of them died a martyr's death. Only the apostle John died a natural death. He lived to old age and, and died um, at uh, about the age of 100. Jesus doesn't tell any of them their future, except Peter. And this is interesting. Because of the denials and now the recommissioning that, that Jesus does, 
He says, Peter, let me, let me tell you what's coming. When you were young, you were strong and able to go wherever you wanted to go, do whatever you wanted to do. But there's a day coming where you will extend your arms and people will put a belt around them. We, we, would, we would say, cuff you. And they will lead you to a place you don't want to go. And John, who clearly heard the rest of the conversation, only gives us that statement, but he clarifies it by saying Jesus was telling Peter the manner in which he would die. Now, Jesus doesn't do that for the rest of us, and it's a good thing. Because frankly, if Jesus told you how your life was going to come to an end, you would probably have one of two responses. You would either exhaust yourself trying to restructure your circumstances so that that, couldn't, that prophecy couldn't come true, or you would say, well, it is what it is, and you just give up and quit and not do anything at all. Jesus doesn't put us in that situation. I mean, even, even the, other, uh, the other 10 disciples besides Peter who are going to die a martyr's death, um, they probably don't know they're going to die a martyr's death until the moment approaches. The Apostle Paul writes to us in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and he talks about his approaching execution. He says, I've, I've run the race. I've, I, I've fought the fight. I, I, I've, done, I've done all the things I was supposed to do. But see, even the Apostle Paul, it's as it is approaching that he realizes that martyrdom is his calling. Peter is the only one who understands well in advance, probably 30 years in advance, that he's going to die a martyr's death. And it's going to be by crucifixion, the same manner in which Jesus died. Oh, by the way, Peter is the only of the disciples that history tells us died by crucifixion. He lived with the, cl with the cloud of execution, of martyrdom, hanging over his head every day for the next 30 plus years. Listen, you may think you want to know how your life unfolds, but you don't. It's best this way. But why does Jesus do it with Peter? Because he's, we've seen Simon sort of reemerge. And Jesus has confronted him. And he said, do you love me? Do you love me? Are you sure that you love me? Okay. Well, let me tell you what you're, what's in store for you. You're going to die in the same way that you saw me die. So how do we know that? Well, Clement of Rome, who was a pastor of the Roman church in 96 AD, he writes about Peter dying under Emperor Nero by crucifixion. In 212 AD, a Latin theologian by the name of Tertullian also gives testimony that the, that the oral history that had been handed down in the churches from generation to generation told the story of Peter dying by execution under that crazy man Nero. Peter knew 30 years in advance that that was coming. Now here's what's happened. 
Peter's had moments of incredible revelation. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter was at the transfiguration. He said, let's, let's build a, a, a tabernacle here and just stay here for a while because this was such an awesome mountaintop experience of the glory of God. Peter had had those mountaintop moments, but he'd also had that night of, of denial. Here, Jesus has recommissioned him. You're going to lead the church. I want you to be a pastor. I want you to set the model. But then he says, but I'm going to tell you something that nobody else knows about their lives. I'm going to tell you about your life. You're going to die by crucifixion. And then he says this, follow me. You see, three years before, Jesus had come to Peter and he said, follow me. But three years later, with everything that Peter has experienced, everything that he's learned, everything that he's seen from Jesus, plus now information about 30 years in advance, Jesus is looking at Peter and he's saying, okay, now you know the story. You know the price. You know what it's going to cost to follow me. I said that to you once and you followed with real enthusiasm, but you didn't know the full cost. But now you know the cost. And so I'm going to say it to you one more time. Follow me. Folks, this is a powerful moment. And the Peter that we're going to see in just a few days, obviously he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But the Peter who stands up at Pentecost and preaches and 3,000 people come into the church, that's Peter. Simon is gone. Simon, Simon is put away. Now we have the rock. This is what Jesus does. All right, clarity and crucifixion. Jesus wanted him to understand the price of following him so that when he decided to follow him, it would be a settled issue. Now, here's where Peter... Uh, and I don't think I don't think Peter is trying to get out from from under what um, what Jesus has said to him. I don't think because he's not really um, it's, he's not really criticized. He's just corrected here. Look in verse twenty. I want you to see correction and confirmation. In verse twenty, this is how we know that John got up from the breakfast and was following them, because Peter turned around and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them the one who also had leaned back on his chest at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who is betraying you? Now, that's just a hint. Right here at the end of the book, this one who has been referred to all through the gospel as the disciple Jesus loved, he gives his identification, okay? We know that the night when Judas got up and left and went off and started the betrayal process that Jesus had been talking about being betrayed. And if you remember... Peter glances across the table at John and nods at him, you know, find out. And John, who's seated by Jesus, leans back and in private conversation says, hey, Lord, who, who is it? Who are you talking about? Okay, we know that's John. Now we finally have the identification. So all these places where he refers to the disciple that Jesus loved, he gives us the, the explanation now. We know who it is. It's John. Okay, now Peter turned around and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. So Peter, upon seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? You've just given me a glimpse into 30 years into the future. 
what about John? He's my buddy. Are we going to be together? I mean, what's the story with him? Verse 23, uh, verse 22. Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Folks, this is a verse that we need to memorize. Because if I could just translate this into 21st century English, Jesus looks at Peter and goes, Peter, mind your own business. You follow me. I don't know how many times I've seen people who, who say, well, I, well, I'll help, but, but so-and-so needs to help too, or, or somebody else needs to do this, or somebody else. You know, listen, do you love Jesus? Yes. Then follow Jesus and just do what Jesus tells you to do. He's big enough to handle the agenda he has for all the rest of the people. Mind your business. Peter, if I want him to stay until I come back, if I don't want him to ever die, what's that to you? Now, this is where, this is the second loose end that John has to deal with. Verse 23, therefore this account went out among the brothers that that disciple would not die Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? One of the, one of the rumors that took root in the early church was this idea that the, the other disciples would eventually die, but that John would still be alive when Jesus returned. Now you can imagine the, the passion and the, uh, the energy that went into a level of expectation and anticipation toward the end of the first century because John, now he's, he's pushing a hundred. And if Jesus is going to come back before John dies, it, it could happen at any time. John is here settling the issue because by the time he writes the gospel, that rumor has taken root and it's everywhere. And he wants us to understand, Jesus didn't say, I would never die. He said, if I wanted him to not die, that's not up to you. Mind your business. 400 years after John dies, there were still small segments of the church arguing that John was in a tomb in the Holy Land, asleep, waiting for the day of Jesus' return because he's never going to die. John says that's not what he said. Listen, we got to be very careful. The two errors that we make is that we don't pay attention to what Jesus does say. And we often assume that we know something that Jesus never said. What the Bible says, we go with. What the Bible doesn't say, we're silent on. All right? So John's trying to clarify that little mistake that was, uh, that was rampant in the church. Then he finishes this way, verse 24. Speaking of himself, he says, This is the disciple who is testifying about these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. But there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I expect that even the world itself would not contain the books that could be written. John says that he is a credible eyewitness. He's the one that wrote in John chapter 1 that we beheld his glory. 
We, he's the one that wrote in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, that we handled him. You see, by the end of the first century, the Gnostic heresy was prevalent in the church, and it was the idea that Jesus was not physical in any way, that he was either a phantom or a ghost of some kind. And John says, no, he wrote 1 John to say, no, we handled him, we touched him. He was real. It was, it was God in the flesh. But by the time John wrote this gospel, he was the last of the four to write. Doubtless, he had already read Matthew's account of a royal Messiah. He knew Mark's account of God's perfect servant. He knew what Luke had written about the glorious humanity of Jesus. But here he says, the sum total of everything that has been written about Jesus is but the fringe on the hem of the robe of that amazing life. In 1 Kings, in 2 Kings, in 1 Kings, in one of the kings, we have the story of the Queen of Sheba who comes to visit King Solomon. She's heard about his glory. She's heard about his wisdom. She's heard about his wealth. She travels from Africa and she comes to to, to the land of Israel, and she sees all of it. And she says, in, in, in Scripture it records that she says, they didn't report the half of it. In other words, when she got there, all the reports that drew her there, the reports weren't half of the reality. Listen, I don't know everything that we're going to do in heaven, but I'm, I'm here to tell you the Queen of Sheba's testimony is going to be our testimony when we get to heaven because we're going to see the Gospels fleshed out. We're going to see the Bible fleshed out. We're going to have details and answers to questions that, that we've never been able to have here. And we're going to be in eternity, and we're going to look at the story of Jesus, and we're going to say, they didn't tell us the half of it. You see, by the Holy Spirit, we've been given enough to lead us to salvation. But there's so much more. John said, if they wrote books that covered everything Jesus said, everything that Jesus did. The world itself couldn't hold all the books. There is uh, an introduction to a writing that, that is done by Max Lucado. And a church member sent me this, and I, I've saved it for this end part of our, of our series. Because it, it speaks to the motivation of the man who put these words on paper by the inspiration of the Spirit. He says the setting is of this introduction is a scene in a small first century church. He writes, he's an old man that sits on a stool and leans against the wall. With eyes closed and chin on his chest, he does this often during worship. Some might think he's asleep. But those who know him know he's not resting, but he's traveling back in time when he was young, when he was strong again, when he was there. There, on the seashore with James and the apostles. There, in the temple with Caiaphas and the accusers. It's been 60 years, but John still sees it all. The decades have taken his strength, but not his memory. He had been with God, and God had been with him. 
How could he forget? The wine that moments before had been water, he could still taste it. The mud placed on the eyes of the blind man in Jerusalem, he could still see it. The aroma of Mary's perfume as it filled the room, he could still smell it. And the voice, oh, the voice, his voice, John could still hear it. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. If I go, I will come again and take you to be with me. John could still hear him. John could still see him. Scenes were branded on his heart, words seared into his soul. John could never forget. How could he? He had been there. He would often say to others, if, if only you could have been there. Most who had been there were gone now. Peter, James, Nathaniel, Martha, Bartholomew, even Paul, the apostle who came late, he's gone also. Only John remains. But what will happen when John is gone? When John's voice is silenced, who will tell them how Jesus silenced the waves? Will they hear how he fed the thousands? Will they remember how he prayed to the Father? How will they know? And suddenly in his heart, John knows what he needs to do. Later, under the light of a sunlit shaft, the old fisherman unrolls a scroll and begins to write the story of his life. In the beginning was the Word. The Apostle John has become a dear friend to me over the last two and a half years. I'd preached from John before, but not like this. But what I've discovered and what I hope you've discovered is that as John has become a dear friend, the Jesus that John loved has become dear to me as well. And so knowing that as good as this has been, we haven't seen the half of it. Let me ask you this question. Do you love Jesus? If the answer to that question is yes, then his word to you is the same word that he gave to me. It's the same word that he gave to John. It's the same word he gave to Peter. Follow me. Are you in the heart of what God is doing among a people called Evergreen? Do you know Jesus Christ? Are you a member of this church determined to be in the thick of things? Are you serious about your walk with Jesus Christ? 
we won't be here but just another couple of minutes, but I want you to have the opportunity to come and pray at this altar and settle some things. Maybe it's about leaving your past behind. Maybe it's about crucifying the old man in you. Maybe it's about being serious of this business of following Jesus. No more qualification is necessary than that you love him and he'll make all the rest of it right. If you need to know him for the first time, we'd love to introduce you. If you want to be a part of this church, we'll talk to you about how you can do that. Whatever you need to do. We've only been given half the report, but we've been given enough to be followers of Jesus Christ. Father, in this moment, draw us to yourself. Stir in this place by your spirit. And Lord, in this moment, find here hearts receptive, open, anxious to be in your presence every minute of every day. Draw us. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the gospel of John and for what you have done in our lives as your Spirit has taught it to us week by week. Lord Jesus, find here hearts that are completely yours. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.